Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we'll talk about the death of Adolfo Nicolás, former superior general of the Jesuits. After that, the Holy See spoke out against an Israeli proposal to annex parts of the West Bank. We'll unpack what you need to know about that. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good afternoon from New York, Jerry. We're recording a little bit later because you've just gotten back from the Vatican Museums. What was it like? Well, it was quite extraordinary because uh, as members of the press accredited at the Vatican, we were uh, had the opportunity to go in in small groups. I was in a group of six, but the maximum group is 10 persons. And uh, we were welcomed by the director of the museum, uh, Barbara Giatta. And uh, she explained to us uh, that, that she was delighted that they were going to open next Monday. She said, explained that the right now they don't have tourists, but she hoped that Romans and some Italians would come and eventually the tourists. And she said they have really organized the thing so well. You will get your temperature checked when you go in, and then they will take you in groups of maximum 10 people. So the purpose of this was, uh, you know, to show what it's going to be like when the Vatican museums reopen. And they're able to they're able to do that because the uh, death rate in Italy has fallen so much. Right. Well, the death rate tonight is down to 78. So the the news here is good that the pandemic is finally under control and the government plans to open the borders uh, so that people can travel between countries. I don't know which countries yet. Uh, on June the 3rd. So the the museum is opening just before that, opens on June the 1st, and they're hoping that maybe from the beginning, at the beginning, people from Germany and France and such like will come, but also Italian, Italians. I think it's a great chance, an opportunity for people with family to take children in, because sometimes if you take children in or young people, there are too many, there's a big crowd of people. But now with just 10 people, it's a golden opportunity to see the museums. I wish you could come, Colleen, and many of our listeners. <laughs> I wish I could too. <laughs> So for our first story, uh, the former superior general of the Jesuits, Adolfo Nicolás, died last week in Tokyo. Uh, Father Nicolás was from Spain, but he spent much of his time working in Japan. And he was known for leading a big part of the implementation of the Jesuits' decision to kind of prioritize social justice and working on the margins. Um, Jerry, you knew Father Nicolás personally. What was he like? Well, I, I was—I'd met him several times, and in fact, I think I told you in our preview chat that he gave me permission to publish my book on the famous Jesuit theologian Jack Dupuy, "Do Not Stifle the Spirit." Mm-hmm. And he—he uh, he, he was a really gentle soul, almost timid, but very, very bright, and you felt that he. It was so easy to connect with him, and he spoke in a way that was easy to understand. In a way, he had something like Francis Hmm. or Francis. Uh, I I was really uh, touched by. He he was a humble man. He he never pushed himself. 
He never sought to be, to be one better than the other person. This is why I think that when Francis was made Pope and the two had met before, but now they were in different roles, he was Father General of the Society and Francis was the first Jesuit Pope. When they met, immediately the day after the election, Nicholas sent a note to all the Jesuits saying, you know, it's his great uh, honor. And he said he, he's a man who will bring hope. You interviewed the the current Superior General of the Jesuits, Arturo Souza, about Father Nicholas. And this was one of the things that he highlighted in your interview, too, right? It was this this closeness between Father Nicholas and Pope Francis after he was elected. Um, you wrote in your story that, that Father Souza said that, you know, good friends are kind of hard to come by for popes, um, but that Father Nicholas was somebody that Francis could really trust. And I was wondering if if there's any story you could tell or any example you could give about what their relationship was like. Yes, I, I think Father Sosa put his finger on a very important thing. When you are in a position like the, being Pope, people come to you and you have to work out whether they're really telling you the truth or whether they're spinning you a tale. To be able to trust what people say and to be able to trust their analysis is a big thing. With Father Nicholas, he was able to trust Nicholas mm-hmm. completely. And so when... Uh, before Francis became Pope, uh, the uh, bishop uh, in Anatolia in Turkey was assassinated, stabbed by his driver uh, in 2010, June. They still had no replacement for him when Francis became Pope. And Francis asked, uh, tried among the religious orders, etc., to find a replacement. And he couldn't find one. So he asked Nicholas, can you find one? And Nicholas came up with an Italian... Jesuit from Florence who has real experience in the Middle East and he proposed this name to Francis and Francis said yes good and he asked this man to be bishop and he accepted and and it's you can only do this with friends and you trust on the name because you trust the man who tells you that this is a good man right that's a big act of trust to be able to make to to trust someone with that kind of decision um, now, you tuned into the funeral mass that was held in Japan for Father Nicholas. I was wondering what stood out to you from that. Well, several things. First of all, the celebrant. The celebrant was the man, Father Renzo de Luca, who is the provincial of the Jesuits in Japan. He, he's an Argentinian priest whom Francis, when he was provincial of the Jesuits in Argentina, sent as a missionary to Japan. He was the one who in, in, informed Francis first of Nicholas's death. Mm. And Francis sent him a handwritten note, which was read out at the Mass, saying, I thank Father Nicholas for what he has given to the Jesuit order, to the society. And I thank him for what he gives personally to me, the help he gave me. I, I thought this was very touching. The other thing I was touched by was at the end of the Mass, Nicholas was in a coffin, white coffin. They took off the lid of the coffin. People, the, those priests and some sisters and few lay people, all spaced apart with masks, they came and they brought a little white rose to put on the body or else in front of the coffin. And uh, I, I, I found that very touching. That there was a, uh, It was a sentiment that was came across very powerfully. The reason that this funeral was celebrated by the superior of the Jesuits in Japan was because the Sosa couldn't come to the funeral, right? Yes, so Father Sosa couldn't come because of the restrictions, travel restrictions, because of the pandemic. But he gave the homily. He pre-recorded the homily, and it was uh, 
transmitted during the uh, during the mass. Oh, cool! If if any of our listeners are interested, they can find it. Uh, the link either in one of my tweets or on the, on the YouTube. Perfect. Um, we also did an interview with uh, Father Jim Grummer, who was an assistant to Father Nicholas, um, about their relationship. So you can find that on American Magazine's YouTube channel as well. Um, Jerry, just to wrap the story up, you know, I mentioned at the top of this that uh, Father Nicholas really helped the Jesuits kind of develop this uh, this concern for social justice that they had wanted to implement um, in the same way that I think Francis is now doing for the church as Pope. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if you see any other parallels between them. I think you have to look back. There was, first of all, one of the, the, the inspiration came from the Second Vatican Council. Father Arupe, who became general, I think, in 1965, mm-hmm. picked up this in a very strong way and began to developed also the concept of discernment. Father Nicholas developed that even more. And here we see several points of contact. The focus on discernment, Mm -hmm. the importance of discernment for for the order, the the link of justice and faith. These are all part of uh, Francis's uh, contribution to the universal church. All right. Our listeners can find our full coverage of Adolfo Nicholas's death and his legacy at americamagazine.org. And I will also link to them in the show notes. For our second story, the Vatican has expressed its opposition to a proposal by the Israeli government to annex up to 30% of the West Bank Palestinian territory. Uh, President Trump has backed this proposal on the United States side. And Sayeb Erekat, the Secretary General of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, spoke with Archbishop Paul Gallagher of the Holy See's Secretariat of State. And after their call, the Vatican released a statement saying that this proposal would jeopardize the peace process between Israel and the Palestinian leadership. Um, Jerry, I want us to lay down the basics here for our listeners. How, in the view of the Holy See, would this proposal jeopardize peace? Well, basically, uh, the Holy See is interested in justice for peoples. It believes that there is a situation of serious injustice in the Holy Land today. It sees, it has constantly since right from 1967, it has insisted on the need to negotiate a peaceful solution which would recognize two independent states, each guaranteed security, where each would have full dignity as state. What has happened in these years, and I have seen it, I've been to the Holy Land more than 30 years ago first, I've seen the expansion of settlements. In other words, Israeli settlers, I mean Jewish settlers, being given parts of Palestinian territory, setting up little villages, towns, walled off now from the Palestinians. The latest U.S. proposal really, in the eyes of most independent uh, observers say that this effectively sinks the possibility of a real viable Palestinian state. Because what you, what you will get 
if the American proposal, which the Israelis are taking up, and we're waiting for the full details of it, what you will have is something like a Gruyere, what we call a Gruyere cheese. This is the Swiss cheese where you have lots of holes in it. And those holes are the settlements, right? The, the holes would be represented by the settlements. So you have, if, if you take the, the, the state of uh, Oregon, and you have lots and lots and lots of little settlements throughout which are not part of the state but belong to another state, uh, it would be very difficult. And people say this will not make for peace. The Palestinians have flatly rejected it. And uh, they say this is against international law. It's against the United Nations resolutions. The Holy See says exactly the same. Right. And this is interesting because the Holy See recognizes Palestine as a state and it has diplomatic relations with both Israel and the state of Palestine. Um, The Holy See has sought to broker negotiations between the two in the past. And I wonder now, you know, they're they're taking this decisive stand that seems, uh, you know, they support a two-state solution, but this, this stand comes off as being, you know, kind of, favoring the Palestinians here. Um, I I wonder if that jeopardizes the possibility of negotiations. Look, the stance is a stance in favor of justice. And where you see injustice being done, the Holy See feels it has to speak out. And it feels that an injustice would be done to the people by the imposition of this solution. Right. I'm wondering if it would get in the way of the Israelis being willing to talk to the Vatican and to participate in negotiations with them? Look, the, the, the Holy See's position, the Vatican position from the word go has been to get a negotiated solution to avoid violence. It has constantly urged Paul VI, John Paul II, especially had great relations with Israel, uh, Benedict XVI, now Francis, they have all tried to encourage, to support to try to bring uh, talk with other governments as well to try to get a peaceful solution where both communities the palestinian and the israeli have each independent states guaranteed security where each of them can live together in peace and cooperate together but the imposition of a solution by one side on the other will never grant peace in the eyes of people here in the Vatican and in the eyes of most uh, independent observers. Okay, so this is uh, kind of another of those cases that that we talk about sometimes on this show where the Vatican is trying to be like a moral leader and and set an example for, for others to follow, is what it sounds like. The Vatican is, is very supportive of Israel's security and statehood, but it is also supportive of Palestinians' security and statehood. And it wants the two peoples to live together. And it's in the view of the Vatican, which is a long time, followed this for many years very closely. Uh, This is not the path to peace, the solution that is presented by the American administration and now being also, it seems, uh, agreed by the new coalition government in Israel, led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, Benny Gant, the leader of the opposition. Got it. 
Jerry, I appreciate the chance to get to talk through this kind of complicated issue with you. Uh, our listeners can find your write-up of the Vatican Statement uh, at AmericanMagazine.org, and I will link to it in the show notes in case they want to read more. Before we go, I want to touch quickly on a message that Pope Francis sent to Chinese Catholics on Sunday. Jerry, you reported in your story that Pope Francis made reference to the trials that Chinese Catholics face. Um, one example of that might be that, you know, they they deny children the right to go to church services. Um, and these trials have persisted even after the Vatican-China deal was made. Now, Francis's statement didn't directly address examples of the trials, but it did mention them. So I'm wondering why that mention was important. Well, Colleen, first of all, the timing. Uh, The 24th of May is big feast for Catholics in China. There is a big shrine in uh, just outside Shanghai, which I've been to, the Our Lady of Shezan. That's uh, where you see on top of it, there's a statue of Our Lady lifting Jesus up as the light of the world. And it's, it's a very big feast in China. Many, many Catholics would go there, pilgrimage, etc. In recent years, it's been very difficult for Catholics to go there. And of course, this year with the pandemic, it's been really almost impossible. Catholics have were hoping a lot that after the agreement was signed between China and the Holy See on the appointment of bishops, and it's a provisional agreement two years ago, that their situation would somehow improve. But the reality is the Chinese government has been, uh, at least a section of the government, seem to be against all religions. They're uh, hitting at the Protestant churches, the home churches, they're hitting at uh, Buddhism, they're hitting at Islam. So there's a a kind of an anti-religious spirit in part of the Chinese leadership. The Holy See is aware of this, but it is happy that it's improved its relation with China, and so they're able to talk now. But what it's not so happy with is that the Catholics, and you're talking about 12 million Catholics, almost equally divided between underground church community and government-recognized church community, that they do not have real freedom yet. The Pope, by mentioning the trials of the Catholics in China, he's sending him a message, and he's saying the Holy, the Universal Church is praying for you, and we're not forgetting you. It's a message of encouragement and saying, don't think we're ignoring this or overlooking it. This is the unstated but very clear message for the Chinese Catholics. Um, also on Sunday, in that, that same day, uh, the Pope announced a year of prayer and reflection on Laudato Si, uh, which was first published on May 24th. We will have more on that for our listeners next week. We're going to interview two Princeton University sociologists who have studied the impact of Laudato Si on citizens in the U.S., so stay tuned for that. Um, Jerry, we also have an update on uh, the Pope's Pentecost Mass. Can you give us that? Yes, we've just learned today that the Pope will celebrate Mass in St. Peter's Basilica at the altar of the Blessed Sacrament in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel, but without the presence of uh, the people. And that will be streamed. And afterwards, he will go to the study window in the papal palace and greet, and people will be allowed into St. Peter's Square. And so for the first time in over two months, people will be allowed. Last last Sunday, there were some people, but a very small number. 
next Sunday, I think there will be many people in St. Peter's Square. There will be social distancing and everything. And this is the beginning of the uh, normalization of an abnormal situation. We're moving into a new situation in the Vatican, parallel with Italy, where the situation is improving, but they're taking no chances. Makes a lot of sense. Jerry, uh, I appreciate the chance to talk with you through all these stories. I always appreciate getting your perspective, and I'll chat with you next week. Thank you, Colleen, and uh, I hope uh, that New York will have as good as news as we are having in America in the coming weeks. All right, thanks, Jerry. Uh, have a good night. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Tucker Reddick. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I. You can also email us your questions at insidethevatican at americamedia.org. For American Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. <laughs>